Hey, Connor. Thanks for hey. uh, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, happy to. I know we've kind of talked a little bit about this, but I mean, obviously, this is like you and I have met now for five minutes, so we'll yeah. get into the uh, we'll get into like really getting to know each other. While we're uh, doing the intro, in fact, I'll share my screen so that people can see uh, maybe even just a little bit behind the kind of scenes of what I do to prepare. So uh, I've got, I mean, I've become a bit of a uh, Rome junkie over the past like month and a half, which is why I wanted to do the interview. And what's funny is I've had like a bunch of my friends come, come out to me and basically say the same thing, right? In fact, I got a text yesterday. Uh, he was like, hey, do you know this Connor guy? Like I want to invest in this company. What's it look like? What's going on? Uh, and I was like, yeah, actually funny enough, I'm talking to him in a couple of days. And his like text to me was, Everyone I introduced Rome to texts me within 48 hours and is like, holy shit, this like works the way my brain works. This is amazing. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get into uh, the Rome cult here. And you can see some of my notes that I've got here. When I do a podcast, I'll, like, you'll hear my clicking and clacking in the background as I'm writing mm -hmm. notes. But I generally start with like a ton of questions and things that we can go into. And I'm just going to jump around as you say interesting things. Mm -hmm. The idea of this is this should be kind of like a dinner party, right? Where anybody listening to it is somebody that I trust that's going to give you the benefit of the doubt kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to create an option for you to really be, you know, pretty direct and authentic. Not that mm -hmm. I think you have a problem with that, uh, but I'll follow the kind of interesting threads as you start talking about things. Um, great. And my, my hope is we can talk about why Gnome's interesting and then who are you, right? Like what's your background sure. and, and yeah, what brought you to this point? And then you've obviously got a lot of kind of interesting philosophical beliefs and stuff. So we'll dive, we'll dive into some of those things. And then I've got your, uh, your Twitter feed up and the change log up and the help database. So I'm kind of clicking around that to see, uh, uh, see what's interesting there. Uh, with this little kind of behind the scenes thing done, um, give me just a, you know, like a quick overview of like, what is Rome? What, you know, how do you describe it to people who you meet on the subway and they don't know anything about it? I mean, probably one of the, the more interesting quick ways to describe Rome isn't one that I came up with, but, uh, but something that people have been tweeting um, in the last few days is they've been describing it as a magic junkyard, which is, so, so the, the core idea in Rome is that we want to allow people to have sort of do accretive knowledge work or basically get compound interest on your notes. So being able to collaborate with, you know, your past and future self such that the, the work that you're doing, even if you're doing it in small batches, even if you're just trying to like, you know, clearly articulate one idea or one question you have or one problem you're solving, make it really easy for you to remix your notes, find a bunch of things which you might have written about on a, a number of different pages or across a number of different days that all relate to the same topic. So, you know, when you, when you come, come to work on an area or come to focus on something that's interesting. It's really easy for you to, to aggregate all the information that you've found in the past that might be relevant to it and sort of, yeah, remix remix the old scraps that otherwise might get lost in, in a tool like Evernote or Notion. Um, and uh, yeah, and mix those together. So so I've generally thought of Rome as like, we want to build a layer on top of the web of, of personal knowledge graphs where a, a person can represent the actual structure of their mind. Like, you know, how, how all these different ideas that they have uh, or, the, you know, these different observations that they've made might be connected and, um, yeah, and eventually be able to remix those, you know, our, our first, our, the product that we've launched right now is mostly a, a, a single player tool. We have a bunch of organizations that are using it as like a company wiki and a company to-do list and that kind of thing. But the, the core idea is that, that, uh, yeah, we want to, we want to create sort of remixable knowledge graphs, um, for, for building up work over time. Got it. Yeah, it's, it's funny, the, uh, about a day or two before I discovered Rome, I was tweeting out that I really wish somebody would make Emacs org mode yeah. um, for like normal people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and in many ways, Rome reminds me a lot of org mode. 
uh, at least the kind of the text background, text kind of text first approach, the structure of different ideas and kind of snippets or whatever you call them. What was, I mean, was org mode like an inspiration? Or, yeah, that's, or? That's, that's, not a, that's not a total point um, I think I spent, I learned Emacs specifically for org mode when I, when I heard about it because, I mean, I spent, I spent a few years sort of off in the wilderness trying to figure out how to solve some knowledge management problems that I'd run into running a research group and also that I thought were sort of prerequisite problems for doing large-scale collective intelligence work. And I was just playing with, with literally like every obscure tool that I could find. And I found Orgmo to be one of them in terms of general purpose knowledge management, and hackability and extensibility and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, Orgmo has definitely been a, been a big inspiration for us. Where's the obsession with knowledge management coming? Well, I think like Venkatesh Rao had a, had a good sort of talk about foxes and hedgehogs, right? Like a hedgehog yep. is somebody who has sort of a, a big top-down worldview. They have a few like strong beliefs and when they see observations, they sort of fit those into that. Um, but there's sort of another way of being where you're making a lot of discrete observations and then you're trying to figure out how those pieces connect. And there's just been a lot of topics over time that were basically just a, like a bit too big for my head. There were like, like problems that I was interested in where I was like, how do these things fit together? I had a really hard time just organizing and so I had a sort of personal itch to scratch of just figuring out what do I actually believe and, and how do these things relate and, and you know, how does, how does one thing that I see relate to other things that I see? So, so there, was, there was an itch there. But in general, I've also just been interested for maybe the past like 12 years in how does a group of people come to have a shared model of the world such that they can act together. Yep. You know, on a large scale, that's like how do you make a government work? Um, and like at a, a smaller scale, you know, where you've got maybe like four or five people who like have a high degree of trust in one another, but are still trying to like, you know, do a startup or something like that and trying to figure mm -hmm. out, okay, how do we map out this landscape? How do we figure out how to prioritize what features we should build and what the right way is to build them? And how does, you know, one technical decision influence future technical decisions and those kinds of things. Um, yep. But in general, I, I think like, you know, uh, there's like a Margaret Mead quote that says like, you know, don't doubt the ability for a small group of people to change the world. That's the only thing that ever has. Right. But yep. I, I think that, the problems that we sort of are facing at a society level are, are quite difficult and often like quite wickedly interconnected. And mm -hmm. it's pretty hard for even groups of aligned people to, to fully map out a territory um, or like, you know, create some sort of representation of, of what they see in a territory such that they can, they can collaborate effectively. So that's, that's, I get a bit of where for me, it seems like a sort of a meta problem that's important for all other problems of like, if you can, if you can get your thoughts outside your head so that you can get a little bit of distance from them and then sort of like, you know, evaluate them, evaluate them separately from, from you, um, yeah. or like, you know, show them to other people such that other people can help you error correct and give you a different perspective. It just seems like the highest leverage thing to like help you work on, you know, like every other, every other problem like ending aging or curing cancer or, you know, dealing with climate change or terrorism or those kinds of things. So well, that's a bit where my knowledge management focus has come from. I mean, if you think about the um, like the Margaret the Margaret Mead quote as as almost being something that's kind of, I uh, you know, anti or not antithetical, but different than the way you see the world, right? Like, mm -hmm. if a small group of committed people is not the thing that's going to change, that's going to change the, you know, the next hundred years worth of challenges, mm -hmm. um, then what that insinuates is that there's a, um, you know, there's some sort of like evolution going on, right? Like mm -hmm. we're having an upgrade in culture, technology, or humanity. Um, that makes it so that we can have a, a larger group of committed people or we can kind of interconnect more effectively. Mm -hmm. 
are, is there any like historical precedent for that? Like um, maybe the printing press or something like that, but is there any kind of point where, you know, our ability to, to, you know, organize, you know, had a step function increase that is similar in philosophy to what you'd like Rome to be? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a really great paper that I found through Brett Victor called um, Visualization and Cognition that makes the argument that the thing which caused the scientific revolution was, you know, what the, the author Bruno Latour calls um, immutable mobiles. So uh, the, the quote I like is like, in, a, in an agnostic debate, right, a, a debate between, you know, two parties where, you know, the, the other people that they're trying to convince don't have a prior opinion, mm-hmm. uh, able to gather the most, like, faithful, well-aligned allies, right? Yeah. You know, we've had, like, all these, like, cultural practices that we talk about as, as being responsible for the Enlightenment, right? Like, culture, you know, critique or whatever had existed for thousands of years before in a bunch of small places, but because of the challenge of, you know, uh, like, replication errors when like i tell you something chinese whispers game going on mm-hmm. you never got the scientific revolution so his claim is that actually it was it was things like perspective drawing right and uh and things like you know wood cutting that allowed for like you know multiple replications of the same image plus the printing press that actually allowed the scientific revolution to happen and for us to get you know a culture of science in the first place and i i buy that argument i'm sort of a bit of a like technological determinist in terms of culture where it's like you know we shape our tools and then after our, our tools shape us so that's another place for me where it's like sometimes you can create massive cultural change by like you know changing changing the means of communication or changing the means uh by which people like represent thought and so there's a there's another sense in which i think like yeah like you want to build tools that sort of like nudge us in the direction of of better thinking and ideally you can you there's i think there's still a lot more than like the change that happened with the printing press is like there there are changes that are possible especially with with hypermedia that have like yet to be realized that are as great a change as the change from like a pre-literate society to a literate society and that's that's the sort of hope that I've got. Is like right now we don't have like real hypermedia read write like web, uh, especially around like you know complicated belief structures. So yeah. It, uh, so if you're if you're a tech determinist, does that also mean that you're like a technical optimist? Are you optimistic about the the arc of of where technology goes, or do you think that's a it's a neutral force that we shape? Yeah, I, I would say it's like a bit of a neutral force. I think that there's like there's a sense in which I think that the world is already governed by sort of a bunch of strong AGIs, right? If you think like and and those right now are mostly systems like like capitalism and democracy, right? There are places where there are systems that are at play that are. Uh, smarter than any one individual human, uh, but don't necessarily have incentives aligned with like the human race. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are plenty of places where like, you know, well, if you don't, if you don't build this company that is going to do like ad optimization, right. Somebody else is going to build the company that does ad optimization. So you might as well do it, even though like uh, the attention economy might like be perverse in a bunch of ways and like fucking up society. Like, you know, there, there's, there are these like larger systems uh, at play that are, are hard for people to, to gain any sort of leverage over. So I, I do think that like tech can be like somewhat neutral, right? Or like, you know, once incentives are set up, like people will, will play within them. Um, yeah. But I think that that it's a place where like, you want to find some way to put your thumb on the scale and say like, okay, can we create, can create new systems that are equally powerful that have different incentives set up um, such that like, yeah, we can, we can get something that's slightly more aligned with human values. Are you optimistic about that, about getting to alignment with human values? Uh, yeah, pretty, uh, yeah, I think so. Like, I, like, I definitely, I definitely think so. I, I think, you know, like, I like the idea, like the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And, you know, like this whole idea of like, you don't change things by fighting the existing reality. You change things by creating a new one that makes the old one obsolete. Like, I, yeah. I like this, like, um, so I, I'm pretty, 
optimistic about the potential. I don't think that it's something that you can just like sit back and like hope for the best. I think you kind of have to like work on it. Um, but right. I'm, I'm optimistic about, yeah, the potential of the web and the, you know, you don't, like the, you, don't, you don't see the like overwhelming you know, forces kind of, you know, being insurmountable, right? Like you don't see the, no. the negative stuff being insurmountable. No. No, no, no. Sure. Um, well, so I, as as you can tell, I kind of my sin tends to be curiosity, and I tend to ask yeah. very kind of ranging weird questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'll I'll take it back to Rome here for a second. Um, one of the things I'm pretty curious about you you alluded to the fox and the hedgehog thing earlier. Yeah. I'm curious, does Rome work like better for particular types of brains or the ways people think? Are there things that you notice about people who who just grok Rome, you know, more easily? I mean, right now we don't have a great onboarding flow, like. And so, you know, they're, they're folks who sort of enjoy the mystery of it, right? They like come and they mm. like sense that it's like a power tool. They sense it's sort of like Excel for text. And so the folks who like currently who are like flocking to it tend to be a bit more mm. autodidact, like tend to like have direct experience with the problem of like, you know, I have struggled to figure out how to organize my thoughts. I have like felt a huge amount of friction when I'm using something like Evernote or, or Notion or like even like Airtable or whatever to try to like organize my thoughts in a, a strictly hierarchical, somewhat linear way. So I think, you know, in terms of like our early adopter crowd, for sure, there, there are people who like already have felt frustration with the, the sort of incidental complexity or like artificial constraints that have existed in a lot of other tools that, that follow this sort of like file cabinet format. And so like, I think the, the early adopter crowd tends to be a bit more wide ranging in their interests. They're like, you know, more interested in connections between topics, like a little bit like inherently interdisciplinary in their thinking. I, I think this is actually just like how the mind works period. So, you know, I think that as, as the tool becomes a little easier to learn, we'll, we'll see like a broader class of people using it. But, um, but I think that there's a certain, there's a certain like hunger and drive for like people who are pretty insatiably curious and, and trying to like actually understand things in the world and actually trying to write down their thoughts as a way of thinking, like not just as a way of presenting them to others, but like writing such that they can get a better understanding of what they think. That seems to be the, the like the wrong cult uh, today. Got it. And you, I mean, you mentioned there, it's like, this is the way the brain works. Is, is that, do you think that's universal? Do you think this is, you know, there are people who are much more hierarchical or structured first, or is this a, this, this is the way all of our brains work? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I uh, one of our first investors was a guy named Alex Wright, um, who I think he's at Facebook now, but, uh, but uh, ran research for Etsy and he wrote a, a great book called Glut which is a, a history of knowledge, like all knowledge management going back to like Aristotle. Right. Huh. Um, okay. And, and I thought he like articulated really clearly that there's sort of two simultaneous ways that we end up inherently organizing thoughts in our, in our mind. One is through taxonomies, right? Like hierarchical classifications of like, you know, like genus, species, subspecies, you know, those kinds of things. But that all of those classifications are in some sense artificial. Like, you know, there's, there's like fuzzy boundaries and there's places where these things overlap. And then the other way is through these graphs of just like, you know, A implies B. If A implies B, then like that relationship implies C. So, you know, there's, there are, I think, pretty like fundamental operations that, that tools like tools like Evernote or tools like Notion or tools like, you know, like the, the standard files in folders format, just like don't represent the like really basic data structures that, that exist somewhat naturally. Um, and so I, I do think that that's like a, a sort of universal property of human minds, at least, um, is that like, you know, we like to, we like to see categories, but those categories are not fixed. Like, you know, the notes you take about 
a book on marketing that you read on your summer vacation that was recommended to you by your best friend, like those notes kind of belong with your best friend and they kind of belong with your summer vacation and they kind of belong with marketing and they kind of belong in like all the book notes you have. Right. And so to have to decide what file to put that in and try to organize that stuff with tags is, is a like, yeah, an artificial constraint. Got it. Um, are there people that like reject Rome? Like, have you gotten any of the people who are just like, no, this is absolutely wrong. I mean, I like have, you know, a bunch of like public Twitter fights with Tiago. Uh, seems to be and, like kind of neutral though. Right. He seems like, yeah, he's got he's, his system, but he doesn't, he doesn't seem like he, you know, is going to shut down. Like now Rome's broken. Rome doesn't work. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, we, we, I think partially because, you know, like we're still like in the grand scheme of things, pretty small, you know, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, uh, it's not millions of users yet. So we haven't had any, any, I think there are folks who like, it's pretty opinionated software, right? So there are certain things that we, we do where like, we create a daily note for you every day, right? Yeah. Like, just like when you're on the tool, because we think that's a pretty good default location for any idea that you have is you just like put it in the daily note and like you nest it underneath like certain tags or, or, or links to, you know, other subjects that you're talking about, but you, you sort of have this temporal log of things. And some of the people even who use it really frequently, like just reject the daily note idea, right? They like, they want to like have things in, in, you know, subject matter files. Um, sure. And so there will be like particular features like that. And, and people will be like, ah, oh, like it's, you know, when most of the time their frustration is with like, I'm not sure what to use this for or how to use this yet. Yeah. And so I think, I think there's the, the first stage is like, first they ignore you. So the folks who are like not into Rome seem to just like bounce off of it of like, I don't, I'm, I'm frustrated by this blank page. I don't know how to start, uh, but they're not like vehemently opposed to it. They're just confused. So, so if, uh, if first they ignore you and then they fight you, uh, where do you yeah, think the fights are going to, where, where are they going to come from? I mean, I think there's a like, um, like there's a paradigm that we're trying to break, which is this paradigm of like, of you have to choose the, the file to write your stuff in before you have the idea, right? You have to like, you have to, you have to decide of the classification of the idea before you have the idea. And so, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty opinionated on this idea of like, well, like let's, let's break it down one level and just say like each individual thought, right? Each individual, you know, in Rome, it, it could be a, a bullet point or like a level of indentation or a paragraph, right? Like each one of those is, is going to be atomic and something that can be, you know, referenced on a number of different pages and based on how it's, you know, indented, uh, like is going to just appear in, in the background section of many pages. So yeah, like that's a little bit, you know, of a, of a, of a different kind of paradigm from a lot of the other notes. And I, I think, yeah, like it, it requires some, some changes in your mental model would like actually start switching over. But, uh, but you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly where the, the, the fight is going to be. I think it's just like, like, yeah. I, I have an idea at this point. So like people who are listening here who have not like played with Rome. Mm -hmm. um, this is going to be the first one where I try to record video. So we'll see if this works. Um, but do you mind sharing your screen and opening up either your Rome or the health database? And sure. maybe we can kind of run through it and show people Sure. what it is and what it looks like. And then I can ask you some of the product questions in, uh, in situ. Yeah. So this is our, it's funny, like last night at like 1am, um, I decided to actually start mapping out some of our open questions. Some of the things that like, you know, cause I think I, I have a little bit of a, someone on, on, on Twitter called me the, the Nassim Taleb of like knowledge management. Um, and I can, I can sound a little arrogant sometimes. So I wanted to write down like some of the open questions we have that we haven't solved yet. 
Um, so this is actually just my Rome where uh, I decided to like sort of publicly say like, you know, we're, we're in the middle of like uh, interviewing designers and um, wanting to hire uh, an additional user interaction designer. So here I was actually just writing out some of the sort of hypotheses we have about some, some features coming in the future and some like overarching patterns between certain kinds of problems that we think users are um, going to want to and, and need to be able to solve. And so these are just some of my notes that I published yesterday or like, you know, this morning, actually. Um, so let's start right, right now. We're looking at the, the, like the start page, like the, the core set yeah. of, of the health database, which is basically yeah. you've got this kind of cool building and public thing that I'll ask more about if we have time to it. Yeah. It's interesting. But it starts at this idea of daily notes, right? Is what yep. you're talking about, kind of creating notes for, for folks. Yep. Um, and the idea is like, if there's a place to dump your thoughts, that's the place to do it, right? Yep, um, exactly. Uh, and so uh, let, let's run, maybe just run through kind of what the, you know, what the first, like, what's the experience of like, you wake up in the morning, you load Rome, you have a thought you want to record from the night before. What's that experience look like? I mean, like when I, when I'm doing it, right? So if I hop into my daily notes for today, you know, and I minimize this whole thing. The way that I tend to do things, because I like to, I like to break my I, my day down by, you know, um, by time. So you know, I might I might just put in a note like. Uh, it's T Y L E R. Yep. Willis, like what you're talking about, Willis. If I'm like taking notes on our meeting, right? Like I'm basically just going to, you know, create create some meeting notes and and zoom in on those, and just like write write my thoughts from this meeting right now. You know, so, you know, uh, so that's, that's basically how I'm going to like quickly do things. And so the and reason that I, the reason that I create these tags, right. So I create these tags with, with this, you know, double brackets, or, you know, if you, if you forget that, you know, you would just do page reference in this, you know, what, what some folks have called the good shit command, um, <laughs> which is that, that slash. But so this lets me just, and now if I hit uh, control, O, I'm going to just navigate to the meeting thing. And so I've got, um, like notes from a couple of meetings that I've, I've published, right? Mm -hmm. In this case, it's fake, right? I don't actually record my meeting notes in my public uh, one, you know, in my public one, but like, you know, I can jump back here and I can say, well, you know, in my, my demo page where I was writing about room for life logging, you know, I put the meeting, who the people are and say like, you know, like, like these things, right? And yep. so like, Will thinks the best book is eat that frog. I and like have my notes on eat that frog. And these are the same things you might put in a, you know, in a, uh, you know, notebook, like a physical notebook you were, you were tracking. Just yep. here's the thoughts I'm having. I'm just brain dumping. I'm just putting it down. Yep. But if you've yep. got something that, that, that is a topic that links to something, it's a person yep. or yep. it's a book or something, then it yep. creates this page. Right? Yep. And then, uh, and then for instance, like, you know, if I put Tiago Forte, right, maybe somebody mm -hmm. that I, I wrote in my fake meeting, you know, uh, I can suddenly just pull up all the notes I have about Tiago, mm -hmm. um, you know, from, like other days or, you know, this was a to-do I had, right? Where like in reading this book, I thought like, uh, they were talking about rate limiting on steps. And I was like, ah, yeah, this reminds me of like this theory of constraints post from him. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So anyways, I, I end up being able to get sort of an aggregate view over like all my interactions with a particular person. And um, over one, of, time. one of the things that I think is, is really powerful, if we can go back to one, one page over or just to anything where there's, where there's links, one of the things I think that's really powerful is this concept that you talk about of compound interest in thinking. Yep. Um, and these unlinked references, I think, are, are kind of the critical yep. point of that, right? Yep. Which is that text, if it finds it anywhere, it's going to be able, you're going to be able to see where you haven't explicitly said this is related to X. Yep. But the software is prompting you to understand, is yep. this related or not? Yep, exactly. Exactly. Okay. You, shouldn't, you shouldn't have to, this is in like, you know, early prototypes of Rome, right? Um, you know, I link everything. 
right? Like I'm, I'm gonna, anytime there's a topic that I, I think is, is pretty pretty interesting that I might come to it in the future, I'll, I'll make a page for it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you can't know ahead of time what's gonna be interesting, right? So if I decide, you know, later on, I'm, I'm interested in like, you know, if I decide later on I'm interested in a particular topic and I search for it, like, yeah, like 102 unlinked references for productivity, it's probably not gonna be as useful. This is gonna be a huge, huge thing, but I could then filter this thing and I could say, okay, what are the thoughts on productivity that relate to something that, for instance, Paul Graham has said, right? And I can suddenly, you know, focus my attention on just, you know, the Paul Graham, the three things from Paul Graham essays where people were talking about productivity yeah. or where, where he was talking about productivity, right? Um, the, thing, so. the, thing, the thing that I think is like really powerful about this, you may have, you may have said this publicly, I can't remember, um, is it seems, I don't know whether it is actually fighting entropy and reducing it or if it just has less entropy uh, than kind of traditional note-taking systems. Um, but it seems like basically it creates this point where the more you put into it, hopefully the more the more you discover later, the more interconnected this thing gets. Yeah. Is that reasonable? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the the you know like challenge the like beef I have with with, with um, people who are like, oh, you need to follow this particular system in Evernote, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you need to have a folder for, and I think there's there's plenty of advantages to having a folder for you know your projects and like particular areas you're focused on. But sure. like when suddenly like there's there there have been plenty of times for me when I used other tools or when I was just like organizing, you know, my my Google Docs or like organizing my Word documents in, in folders where I would realize I, I wanted a different structure and I would sort of have to, you know, like destroy the whole old organizational paradigm in order to like reorganize all my files. Mm-hmm. And then you know, if I, if I changed my mind afterwards, I'd have to do just as much work to try and get it back. Um, sure. And so I think, you know, there's, there's many different indexes into like how you're thinking about structuring your thoughts. You should be able to have a bunch of those things operate concurrently and then sort of like look at intersections of them to find, you know, like new and interesting patterns you weren't expecting. So, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's funny. This, this is, I, I spend obviously most of my days thinking about, you know, patterns and data structure and such. And we, yep. we call these perspectives, right? You should be able to look at your data with different perspectives uh, exactly. over time. Exactly. Um, it, it strikes me that like compared to Evernote, this is going to be a weird statement, but it, Rome feels more 3D and Evernote uh-huh. feels more 2D. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the kind of graph structure is a large part of that. Yep. Why, why is graph overview like a, a, you know, a top level item? It's the second item. It's always visible. Yep. no matter what, right? Um, what is the graph overview and, and why is that so core? Um, well, I mean, to be, to be fair, I think the graph overview needs a ton of work. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we put it up over here was just because it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of a perspective on the structure of your whole database. I'm pretty sure my graph overview for help is gonna be garbage because it's such a huge database. Um, and to be honest, like, you know, we have, yeah, we have a lot of work to do on, on this feature. Um, well, this is, I mean, the reality is like you, you launched out of functionally alpha or beta like two months ago, three months yeah, ago, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess, well, it's, it's January now. Um, I think we, we started, we started making, uh, like allowing public beta invites in, in middle of October. So I guess we have, you know, October, November, December to January. So like two and a half months. Okay, um, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, and this this was something that we'd had in a bunch of earlier versions. We'd we'd stripped out, um, but then you know some of our alpha users were sort of like crying to get it back um, because they just liked to be able to see the like overall taxonomy of their notes. This is this view is um, the directed graph layout where it's sort of looking at the overall hierarchy of things. 
Um, and so I can go look at, you know, if I shift click on a note, um, it'll open up, up in the sidebar. Um, and I've got the date pick right here down there. So if I click on one of these dates, it'll, it'll convert, but let's remove that. Cause I like, I like that date picker existing. Um, but then if I view this as a coast layout, this is the like coast Bocante graph layout algorithm. Um, and yeah, like my, this room is a pretty huge one. Um, and so this just gives you like a, a sort of constellation of how your ideas are clustered. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I can, I can view this according. If I remove the log days, which is where I do most of my writing, then you'll get some. So this is sort of just giving me a constellation of like how a bunch of different thoughts are related. So I can sort of just like browse through like what people are saying, be like, oh, that's connected to conspiracy theories. And like, these are some of the people who are on the endorsement page. Um, this is like an essay on like, you know, how to develop transformative tools for thought that relates to reason, right? Um, yeah. So it's just a, it's just a like mostly this tool is for fun right now. I would say that like there's there's a huge amount like capability that we want to we want to pour into this in terms of being able to you know query a particular subgraph or you know um, like navigate directly through the graph uh, and like have a bunch of you know better visualizations. But like people tend to just enjoy looking at the high level structure of their sort of mind palace, um, and I think that it's it's important to build tools that are just fun. Right, yeah. uh, and like that people enjoy using, and, and a lot of our a lot of our users get a lot of pleasure from watching this graph grow, and just seeing like oh well like here's a couple clusters of ideas I haven't done much work to connect them yet let me like think about the the connection between like you know this constellation and like this other constellation over here, and see yeah. how I can I bridge these together so just like it's it's more of a like delight feature currently than something that I think is necessarily going to be giving people like you know a huge amount of daily value um, but emotional energy is its own sort of value so do you think it'll give daily value in the future i mean mm -hmm. th this kind of idea of navigating feels core in a way it feels like it's part of the rewiring of the brain yeah i think um you know i think there's like if i if i go and visit let's just go visit this note you know if i if i open up my like little subgraph view over here or is uh, Mur murphy's laws of demos they exactly they always go wrong it's always it's always a little tricky too, and you're dealing with like Zoom taking up most of the bandwidth on my computer. Um, like if I click on design challenges, that'll probably pull up the graph, but, or not. We'll wait. Um, so this case being weird. So all good. But yeah, and there's I, like there's like I think there's a lot of opportunities in these like smaller yeah in in viewing the more particular subgraph and and exploring things through there. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think there's a I don't know exactly what the formulation is, but I think there's like a two, three, or four step guide that you could write that was like how to how to be an interesting thinker right yeah um and i think of you know maybe maybe tyler cohen's the uh you know the like a, a good example of somebody like this but it's it's consume a lot of information you know kind of infobore style yeah. um and then you know think about and and process that information preferably in you know in writing format whether it's mm -hmm. a you know a link blog or a roam database or what have you um, and then look for ways to kind of connect those because it feels yep. like it's a lot like like map you know, you know wiring kind of neurons for thought right like yep. you're starting to build up this ah yeah that that relates to this and this relates to that and now I can kind of see how all four of those things you know make me believe that X is true right yep. Yep. Um, and I, I think that's one of the reasons I think Rome gets such a kind of cultish devotion is because it 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 makes that easier right yep. Yep. Um, and I'm like who are the you know, when you think about kind of Rome thinkers, 
you know, who are the best Rome thinkers that you that you know or follow or have seen, even if they aren't Rome users? You know, I'm thinking of maybe Tyler or Venkatesh or or the uh, Zettel Captain guy, if I pronounced that right. Oh yeah, like Sanka Aaron's. Um, I mean, I think I I'm I'm really looking forward to the day that, that we get um, you know Tyler Cowan using it or hopefully like a like a, an Eric Weinstein or or those kind of folks. Um, who are doing a bunch of interdisciplinary thought and sort of looking for elegant abstractions over a bunch of different domains. Mm. Um, uh, I think honestly, like I am, um, one of the things that I really have liked about Jordan Peterson, for example, is he had this whole idea of um, trying to find things which like patterns, which, which apply across a bunch of different fields. Um, I can't remember exactly the, the term that he was using for this, but he was like, okay, well, you know, if this pattern appears in like uh, evolutionary theory and also in like Jungian like psychoanalysis and also in like, you know, the big five personality test, which is like, you know, like the best sort of uh, most like falsifiable type of, of personality tests or those kinds of things. Like if, if a pattern appears in a bunch of different domains or you can see some, you know, uh, set of archetypes appearing in um, like, like Joseph Campbell did right joseph campbell who's the sort of um, comparative mythologist who was looking for story patterns that were falling across like native american mythology and european mythology and you know like south asian or east asian mythology and he was like okay when, when these when these narrative arcs are the same across a bunch of those it represents some deeper underlying pattern in human psychology the folks who are doing that kind of work are the, the ones that i think of as this sort of like the the quintessential rome thinkers right i mean you also see this for, for folks that are like uh, you mentioned before the call, you've done some work with with hedge funds, right? Like people who are trying to figure out, okay, like what's what's a what's an abstract model that is has explanatory power um, in in a few different domains. Uh, I, I like like David Deutsch's sort of work on this, but yeah, in, in terms of I think uh, Rome thinkers that that I know that are using the tool that are pretty fantastic, right? Like Venkatesh Rao is a great one. Uh, Vizikan V is oh, yeah. you know. Um, uh, uh, Aaron Lewis, um, I think he's just at AZL, uh, Kevin Simler, like, like folks who are doing a bunch of just thinking about really interesting topics and reading really widely on them and then looking for intersections. Um, I've, I've felt pretty fortunate that a bunch of the, like, you know, writers who I've been reading a ton of in, you know, the past five years have started using the tool for their writing, um, which has been a pretty, pretty delightful for me. Uh, particularly Venkat and um, and and Kevin uh, are, are folks who I, I've read a lot, um, and and I like their thinking. So it's really nice to build a tool that helps them think more. You know, it feels like there's, it feels like with the rise of Twitter, there was kind of this push towards um, more public intellectualism. Um, yeah. Maybe this is just recency bias, where that's when I became aware of it. Yep. Um, uh, but it does seem like there's there's kind of a, a renaissance happening of public intellectualism. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a lot of the folks that are doing that, even, you know, uh, even on some of the more practical levels, like a Tiago, maybe yep. um, a lot of those folks are going through this. What I would say is they're, they're kind of empowered by the ease of writing and sharing and yep. the wealth of information that exists. Um, yeah. The Infobor stuff from, from Tyler Cohen. Yep. Um, is, is that part of why kind of now is the time to discover Rome? Like why, why was Rome discovered now and not discovered or you have built or invented or whatever word you want to use uh, 50 years ago? I mean, there's like, um, 
I think there's also like technical reasons, right? Like there's there's sure. been a lot of progress. Um, I'm I'm. Uh, it's funny. It was it was pretty funny. Like Dan Abramoff, who was the guy who created Redux, which is like this sort of you know most popular framework for building React applications, was tweeting about how he wanted Rome as an IDE the other day, um, which was which was hilarious because like you know it was through Dan Abramoff that I discovered ClojureScript, mm. and you know like. Uh, when I when I was first getting into React and started thinking about like ways of building complex web applications in a way that you know a small team could maintain a, a pretty complicated like you know yeah UI um, especially when it's exploratory where we're, we're trying to figure out a lot of stuff um, so I, I think there's been a bunch of things that have made it much easier for smaller teams to build pretty complicated web apps um, yeah. and and make those performant and like you know do do the collaboration stuff and um, uh, yeah. Um, so I think there's been a bunch of things that, that have like, like allowed you to do more unorthodox and untested, like web applications. Um, that's been pretty helpful. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's one reason that, that we were able to build it now, but you know, I wasn't able to build Rome in 2009 when I was doing my first company and we were building it on Ruby on rails and like, you know, just using like, you know, like jQuery, right? Like that's, that was a little bit more be a little bit more difficult to build an app like this um especially when we're we're, we're figuring out so much stuff right and like yeah. trying to do trying to trying to do a bunch of uis that haven't existed before so um so there i think there's 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 multiple reasons that uh for that but i think the the like rise in in sort of like public intellectualism outside of the university context where people aren't just purely incentivized to publish papers and um incentivized to like have a super niche target audience that where you've got a bunch of politicking and that is in some ways like more significant than than your ability to clearly articulate an idea for a lay audience yeah like both of those things kind of help quite a bit yeah it's funny i uh there's things i hate about the attention economy but one of the things i like is that it's created an incentive for sharing these things right that yep. used to only exist in context where there was you know political or or kind of corporate benefit to do so yeah. Um, and generally only political in the, in the uh, academic, academic system. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears into something else, but before I do that, um, when you think about this kind of idea of like the rise of public intellectualism, these kind of trends that are pushing towards this, um, and you think about this kind of tech determinism uh, that, that is a you know, kind of core belief you have mentioned yeah. earlier, um, is, is this kind of intellectualism as a habit or improving the kind of mind, you know, the, the mind uh, production function kind of tie that we're talking about in these, in these folks, is that accessible to everyone? Like, is that learnable? Is that someone that we're, can people become a thinker or is this something that people are kind of naturally wired toward? Yeah. It's probably I, a, probably a, you know, a, a bit of both, but where yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, so I had a, uh, over Thanksgiving break, I, I had like about a six hour writing session that I just did in our, our public health database where I was sort of talking about, um, like use cases and, and sort of like underlying philosophy. And, and I was talking about this idea of like doing science on mm. your life, right? Mm. Where science is, um, science is like the search for good explanations that cover, you know, a broader range of things that have, have explanatory power, have predictive power over, you know, more things than just the initial data that you were looking at to, to come up with that explanation. Um, and I think Rome has had a pretty, you know, uh, like a reasonably technical, like early adopter audience, right? You know, we, we started actually like in the AI research community. Um, and so, uh, 
but even there we see a lot of people who are just doing a ton of journaling in it and then looking for patterns across their journal entries right so they're they're writing about their emotional lives and their relationships and and looking for you know like patterns and in interaction that they're having over time of like you know if i'm getting in a fight with you know my fiance being able to like look at my gratitude list and and filter on her name and just remember like you know okay let me like let me load into my working memory like all the things that are really great in this relationship as opposed to you know the recency bias of like the fight that we're having right now right and we've seen you know like i, I uh one of our our earliest users um was originally like getting into rome because she was writing a, a chapter in a, a medical textbook um but then started actually just like using it primarily for journaling to deal with you know the emotional fallout of her father dying and thinking about that relationship and then noticing a bunch of really interesting patterns in like her feelings around like guilt and shame and you know like power um and so i think there's there there is like there are habits of mind that are not like default you know like this this desire to say like like let me challenge my preconceptions like let me like let me see whether the explanation i have for how things are happening fits with the evidence and so let me try to to like consider new potential frames on it i think there are, there are like a lot of mind habits that you're not going to like automatically get from any sort of technical tool but um yeah. hopefully if we make affordances to make those sort of behaviors really easy then it's easier for people to like like one of the reasons i like i like uh computer science in general is it's a place where you can get like like a like a physical handle on very abstract concepts right you can like actually like you know reify abstractions and then like just like mess with those in code and like you know put put some data through it and see if it, it works for a bunch of different kinds of data and that kind of thing um and so i think if we, if we make a tool that makes it easier for people to to do those sort of like abstract behaviors but actually like see immediate tangible benefit from them then you know like it's a lot better than just like telling people to like have a more scientific mindset or something yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny it reminds me of one of my uh uh kind of theories about reading which is if you're taking notes on things and writing them and understanding them uh then you know that 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 becomes part of understanding a book better and learning yeah. from it but it's yeah. actually not about specific knowledge that you're pulling out of books it's a lot yeah. of it's just you're rewiring your brain by reading it um, so a lot of people can just write and get a lot of this benefit, but they get more of it if they're using a tool like Rome to make it easier to, yep. to kind of, you know, find those interconnections and those abstractions. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, well, I, I want to switch gears a little bit into you. Okay. Um, you called yourself kind of the, uh, you know, Nassim Taleb of knowledge. I, I didn't call myself that. I didn't call myself that. Yeah. Yeah. Other people. Yeah. The way, the way I wrote this down in my, in my Rome notes prepping for this was, I. Uh, um, you seem fairly committed to a concept that I'm broadly thinking of as either um, like individualism or liberty, both of which I'd say are kind of loaded words that are probably uh -huh. something you should accept. Um, what What is a better way of understanding kind of your mode of operating? Like you seem pretty iconoclastic or driven or direct or self-confident or yeah. arrogant or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, sure. What is that? Um, well, I mean, on the like, I... I... I tweeted this. I liked um, uh, this guy, Nate Soraz, who I, I think runs research at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, um, has this idea of confidence all the way up. So yeah. like the ability to appear like or like the fact that certain things like read as so read socially as confident when you're being still clear about like how much error there is in your models or like how much like limited data that there is. But if you have confidence in 
like like I might have not have I might not have confidence that like the thing that I'm saying is true, but I have confidence in like my my epistemic certainty of it, yeah. right? Of like yeah. of like okay, yeah, like like given X, Y, and Z, then like B is true, and I think that there's like some like probability range for like X, Y, and Z to be true. I'm 51% confident B is true, and everyone goes, "Wow, he really knows what he's talking about." Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a like I have where I where I don't have confidence in my facts, I have confidence in my reasoning and where I don't have confidence in my reasoning, I have confidence in my like support structure in terms of like the other people that I spend a lot of time with who like very vehemently disagree with me um, yeah. and like aren't about to be like, I, I like this idea of like a rationalist is someone who would rather not get their way because they can't persuade people than get their way through force. Um, and so I like tend to surround myself with like pretty like opinionated people uh, that are like not easily convinced by like, you know, my like, forceful nature um yeah. so i like am forced to like try and be articulate in my ideas and and mm -hmm. update when when i um when they're seeing things that i'm not seeing so i have yeah. a lot of so i think there, there's also a sense in which like one of the problems i have with like libertarianism um or like individualism particularly you know the kind that i think is like the water that we're swimming in in the united states where like we're extremely individualistic compared with every other country and every other society that's ever existed yeah. and i think that this is like just not a true reflection of like human nature. Um, like, like, you know, you're the average of the people you spend the most time with to some extent, right? Like, um, you know, we're, we're shaped by our interactions and by our relationships. And so I don't really buy into this, like, like there's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman, right? Like everyone is also a product of their environment um, and a product of the like agency that they have in shaping their environment and deciding who they're going to associate with and those kind of things. So I, you know, I used to like identify a lot as like a libertarian socialist of like, um, basically the thing that I care about is not just individual autonomy, but autonomy for groups. So the mm -hmm. ability for a group of people to say, these are the constraints that we want to put on our lives. Like, like free freedom can also come from constraints. Freedom is not purely like the, there's, um, Scott Alexander has a, a great sort of post on this on like, uh, I think atomic communitarianism um, where like, you know, if you're trying to go on a diet and somebody in your office is bringing in donuts every morning and it's creating huge taxes on your attention and your willpower, like, you know, they're not in a like traditional, you know, uh, like non-aggression principle, like violating your rights or like violating your sovereignty, but they're adding a bunch of complexity to your environment that's going to make it harder for you to achieve your goals. So I think it's also important for people to be able to set constraints for themselves and you know collectively opt into certain like um structures right um that that can yeah that can that can limit choice and therefore like free up a bunch of cognitive power so okay. um so yeah uh i don't know if that that totally answers the question of like i think yeah where i'm confident it's like not necessarily like it's like it's it's a distributed confidence right it's like confidence in you know some of the the like things that which i i think you know our team is seeing that other organizations haven't seen and, mm -hmm. and there's a little bit of a like you know anger at the status quo that that, yeah. that comes out a bunch um but you know i don't i don't claim that we like yeah i like i a, a system that's good at error correction is going to make more errors um but if you've got a system that you trust to like to do error correction well i would rather sort of like loudly state my opinions and then like, like uh, there, there's this, I think it's Cunningham's law, right? Like the best way to, 
to get an answer on the internet is to like, bro, like to answer a question on the internet is to like sort of boldly proclaim the wrong answer. Yeah. And so I find that like error correction works a little bit better when I am not like, um, uh, yeah, like what's, what's the term that I'm thinking of? Like just putting like caveat after caveat after caveat and like not actually clearly saying what I think. I'd rather just like say what I think and hopefully get some, you know, opinionated people to, to put up some counter arguments and, and potentially like strong opinions, weekly health kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Do you, uh, so th this is going to be a, uh, uh, this is going to sound mean and I don't intend it to. Sure. Do you consider yourself likable? I consider myself like polarizing, I guess. Like I, I find that the people who like me really like me and the people who don't really don't. And like, I, I do think that sort of like the opposite of love is in indifference and I'd rather like um, put forward myself as clearly as I can and, and sort of like put that out as sort of like a, you know, a resonator of like, you know, here's the frequency I'm operating on. And, and if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. So I do find that like the people around me tend to like me a lot uh, and I tend to like them a lot. And so. Yeah. Um, and, and people who don't opt out. Yeah. And yeah. that's like, and, and that I guess goes again with the sort of like atomic communitarianism thing is just like, well, like, if you don't like me, you don't have to spend time with me. You don't have to listen yeah. to me. Like, just like block me, like you mute me. Like, that's fine. Right. Like, um, yeah. Cause that, cause I think, you know, part of this thing, you answered the question um, in part, at least on the, uh, on the kind of intellectual level of, okay. you know, what, like, like what, what does this all mean and how do you think about it and how do you have error correcting systems and how do you get to the right answer? Right. Yeah. But I think part of what this, you know, I, so I, I mean, a, I, I, I find you like gravitating, like uh, there's, there's a likability. Thanks. I appreciate um, that. I like, I uh, like you too, John. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. it. But, but there, it's not like the, the stuff that reads as confident or arrogant, depending on which side of the debate you're on, yeah. like, it's not just the thinking, right? It's also the fact that, you know, you're, uh, when you take a zoom call with, yeah, like I knew you were going to be outside smoking a cigarette when we were talking because you yeah, did yeah, it with yeah, Tiago, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. and it's kind of just like, yeah, here I am. And, and, you know, take, yeah. take, take it or leave it. Right. And I, yeah, yeah. I, I caught what I assume is only, uh, what I, what I assume is your fiance who like walked outside and I saw yeah, you yeah, just yeah. had a little look on that. Yeah. Um, like, like where does that confidence to be yourself come from? Like, um, that's something my, I think a lot like, of people don't have. Yeah. I think like, uh, my mom probably, I don't know. Like, I think like, um, Holding me up as a little kid and be like, look at the beautiful baby sort of thing. Like, I think, you know, I, I knew my parents had my back. Um, I okay. think that's one thing that I was pretty, pretty fortunate about. My mom was an illegal immigrant. She like, you know, came to the U.S. without, without a visa and like sold hot dogs in front of the Liberty Bell and like was pretty herself, pretty like anti-authoritarian um, cool. and like very like resistant to, you know, a lot of the, the sort of like structures that you see from, from like traditional education. Um, you know, I went to public school, but like, you know, when I got in trouble, there was, there was usually a sort of implicit assumption that they were going to have my back. Um, like, even if like, you know, even if we would fight really violently, like there was a, a high degree of trust. Um, so I think that that's, that's pretty, I think that that's a, a place where I've just got a huge amount of privilege of like, like knowing that like there are, there have been people who will have my back, even if I'm doing something that is not like love is not uh, dependent on following convention right yeah. or like love is not dependent on like love and like some amount of social acceptance is not dependent on like following a particular life script that you know involves going to the right schools and getting the right job and like that kind of thing and i think that's a place where you know i'm i'm really i've been really blessed like i've just been like really really fortunate to have some of that you know privilege um and so i want to like yeah use that to create affordances for people who like like may not have had that kind of thing so yeah yeah well, I 
the the kind of the psychological foundation of safety is uh, yeah. very big, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, then, so, uh, yeah, there's there's a flip side of that too, where it's, you know, like I also like like did just experience a lot, like a huge amount of challenges as a as a young kid, and like a huge amount of like desire to prove myself, which I think was also just as as helpful um, in terms of like like getting that sort of like fire in the belly of like yeah. like fuck you, like you say I can't do this and I'm going to do it anyways, just to show you like, where'd that come from? I like hit puberty really, really late. And so I was just like the smallest kid in high school. Um, and you know, just like, like not particularly strong. Um, but I like decided that I was going to wrestle, uh, because it was like, you know, the best, the best workout I could possibly get. And there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, you're going to quit. Like you can't handle it. And I was just like, well, fuck you. Like, no, like I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing and, and spent like, about like uh, I think it was about two and a half years after I started wrestling before I ever won a match, um, but like you know, fortunately, like got stronger and learned like learned some moves that like worked well for my body type and was able to eventually like do pretty well. Um, but like, uh, but but being able to like go through a long period of darkness of like not having any external validation or not having any external success and then like see that through to to get some victories. I think was pretty helpful for doing startups where you're going to go like any, any sort of research space. So there's going to be a really long period of self doubt, like, you know, Oh, like nobody else has solved this yet. Is this actually even a like solvable problem? Like yeah. what the hell makes me think that like I'm able to solve this, you know, like, yeah, like that kind of but stuff. I get, I get the, like I'm reading tea leaps here. So tell me if I'm wrong, but I get the read that that's a, uh, that there's a chip on your shoulder in that answer, yeah. right? Like yeah. the, the wrestling was not because it was a good workout, right? It was a lot of the seeing through the, the dark night was, was proving somebody else wrong. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's like, that's just as I'm really grateful for Tiago, for example, right. For like, like the rivalry that we've got where sure. some of my best writing last year was, you know, he would say some things in defense of Evernote, right. That I thought were just completely ridiculous. And the like the anger at someone being so wrong and leading a bunch of people in the wrong direction was like a motivating force for like, no, like I, I can't, I can't let that thing just sit. So I do think that like some amount of, competition or rivalry, um, uh, like, like a nemesis is, is a great gift. So who was who your first nemesis? Like, where did that chip on the shoulder come from? Cause like, you have, you know, you don't have to prove yourself to your parents. They love you. Like where, where's that, where's that desire to, to really prove it, you know, come from, where's the fire in the belt? Well, I mean, like there was like, you know, there was this like one punk kid on the wrestling team, right. Who was like, like a huge tough guy that was like, ah, you're going to quit. And I was like, fuck no, you're going to, and you know, he quit after, two years and I, I followed it through for four years. So there was like some amount of like, like uh, rivalry there, but that, that wasn't, I don't, I don't know. There was already something there when that happened. So I couldn't quite yeah. replace that. Um, uh, like, I think, you know, I, I, I remember, I remember like trying to buy white Fang from like the bookstore, you know, when I was like in you know, pre-kindergarten um, and like they wouldn't sell me the book because it was like, you know, beyond my reading level. And it's like, just like infuriated my mother and like that like that sort of rage was like like carried over into me i also grew up like um she came over from ireland like in the middle of the troubles um so like ireland was sort of like a you know the, the main like hotbed of terrorism because of um and so i like grew up with a lot of stories of you know the british outlawing the irish language and like you know like like irish teachers having to like teach the language in the bushes and like this 
this whole like narrative of there has been one group of powerful people that have like tried to like destroy people like me. Um, and I think that was like pretty formative when I was young was like that, that sort of, um, yeah, like, like desire to, for, for group autonomy as well. Right. For like, not yeah. just like, like individual autonomy or like individual liberty, but like, like stories of like, oh, you know, like there was a huge surplus of grain during the entire potato famine when like, you know, millions of Irish people were dying and they were exporting grain to England the whole time because, you know, plenty, plenty to feed everyone, but, uh, yeah. but they, you know, wanted to make sure that the markets were working and just felt like it, it, the world was better off with all these Irish people dying. So I think those, those things were pretty, the stories were pretty formative too. Um, I, I can imagine that experience feeling a bit like, um, like your mom being the best ally you could ask for in a way, right? Yeah. Like, like she, she empowered you and trusted you and loved you fully in this point of security. Um, but then she had an, an intolerance for the unfairness of the outside world. Yeah. So you, you two against the world kind of thing, right? Yeah, that, that definitely was, that definitely was a, a thing for a while. Yeah. Cool. What yeah. role does politics play in your life? Because you, I mean, you seem like you've had intermittent spurts of activity on that. You know, 08, you did a couple of things on it and yep. been involved in Occupy in a way. Like what, yep. what, yeah. What was it? Friendly partisan for Andrew Yang? Like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what I, role does politics play in your life? Um, yeah, I mean, I think politics is like, I mean, it's even intellectually like, one of the most interesting spaces, right? Like, I cool. think like the human, the human mind isn't even the most complex organism on earth, right? There, there are these like mimetic structures that like, you know, cause group identity to form and like, like, uh, there, there are these sort of like, super organisms of ideology or super organisms of like shared narrative or shared stories that like end up, you know, influencing all the sort of individual cells, which are, which are humans. Um, so, uh, and I, I think that's, that's like one of the most important things that's like going on in the world. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I've generally, I think I, I generally believe in, in evolution. Right. And so one of the things that you want in, in a, like, like, uh, yeah, it like goes back to error correction. Right. And goes back to like, you know, the, the most important thing in governance is like, you can't know ahead of time what policy or what, you know, ruler is going to like actually, you know, be successful. Um, mm -hmm. so you need to be able to remove those without violence and have like fast systems of error correction. And so I, I in general, I've, I've sort of been a bit pro decentralization. So like, how can you do, you know, like, if like states are the laboratories of you know democracy right like like city governments are even more so so i've in general had a, a bias towards um how do you enable more civic innovation how do you enable more like experimentation in like what systems of government could look like because you know we've been doing the same thing for the last couple hundred years uh there are clearly plenty of problems with it, it might be the best thing that's going right now is like this particular mix of, of democracy and capitalism but like probably isn't the end of, of history. Um, so I've been really interested in just like, how, how could you, how, how's good, how's technology going to change that? Like one of those things. So yeah, my first startup was trying to create, um, basically, uh, both collective intelligence and like common knowledge about what the desires of a particular like group of people were with the hope that that would um, influence like more rapid evolution in public policy. So, you know, the first company I started was called Localocracy. We like, you know, because we went and talked to a lot of local leaders, we were like, all right, well, everyone's concerned about astroturfing. They're concerned about like, you know, some like Twitter mob that like doesn't actually relate to the city, like jumping in on a, on an online ballot and like, you know, stacking the votes or they're concerned about some public interest group that's like taking national attention and applying it to some local issue. And I really have just been interested in self-governance at like, you know, the personal sovereignty level, but also the like collective sovereignty level to like 
potentially even like choose constraints. Like I love the Amish, right? The Amish are like, I'm really glad that the Amish exist. Um, where like, you know, they, especially because, you know, they, they give freedom to the individuals raised in that community to, they, they force them to leave for a certain period and say like, if you want to be here, you have to opt in. Um, yeah. We're going to like still raise you with our values and like show you what this way of life is like, but you have to like go out into the external world and see what's there and then decide whether you want to come back into this, this world that has additional constraints. Um, so yeah, in, in general, like I've, I've been sort of like, how can we use the internet to like make smarter um, and like more resilient, more adaptive like governance systems. Uh, so, you know, my like first entry into politics was like uh, some stuff I did basically, I was very motivated by the Obama campaign because I liked the way that they were using technology. And I liked the, like, I had a lot of hope that, that after Obama was elected, the sort of infrastructure that had been put in place to get him elected would be like converted into sort of a bottom-up information system that would like mm. allow some of that experimentation. Um, but that didn't quite happen. I was like, you know, uh, on a like more libertarian side, um, like involved with like the campaign to decriminalize marijuana in Massachusetts. So like, you know, before I got into startups, I was doing more political stuff. Um, but then, uh, yeah, from, from there, I've sort of been like, well, I think like the particular point of leverage where I've got on these things is not in like, just, you know, helping a particular campaign. It's like sure. trying to build um, infrastructure that could, you know, empower people to, to do a different kind of decision making or a different kind of analysis. Um, so, yeah, uh, like I'm, I'm similarly, like currently a, a big fan of, of Dominic Cummings in the EU um, and the, uh, which, you know, is, is definitely controversial because like uh, Twitter at least does not like Brexit. Um, yeah. I thought there were some, I thought there were some very compelling arguments for Brexit from, particularly from, from David Deutsch. Um, who I respect a lot uh, around, you know, around this this stuff. Um, but in general, I also just really like Dominic Cummings was similarly influenced by Michael Nielsen and, and Brett Victor, who were some of the, I think, are like, you know, best living thinkers. And so the fact that there's someone who's trying to, you know, get, get, uh, call the weirdos into government and figure out ways to do, you know, dynamic documents and seeing rooms and like, you know, ways of, of getting, uh, policy that that changes as the facts change, um, which I, I think is, is pretty pretty critical for for getting to a, a world that we're, we're happier in. So. I I wouldn't have guessed uh, you thought there were good arguments for Brexit. Um, yeah. I would have like, and actually I find some of my favorite people kind of that are politically aware tend to have very hard to map beliefs because it's yeah. not like oh you go this way or that way, right? Um, yeah. So what's the good argument for Brexit? Why why pro Brexit? If I can ascribe that to you. Um, okay, so I think if you want to understand Brexit, uh, I, I tweeted a little bit about this, but I think there's a, a video, uh, it's like a, about a 45 minute interview with David Deutsch, who's this, um, he's a quantum physicist, but like um, has, has written a lot about Karl Popper, um, who's like, you know, pretty famous in philosophy of science, but also wrote a lot about uh, politics. Um, you know, he's a, a book called um, uh, The Open Society. I think that's what it's called. Um, um, and yeah, yeah, like his his forty five minute interview, like definitely like changed my opinion on a bunch of things. Um, the main thing that Bre he was, Brexit and error correction is the video. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I basically I'll I'll parrot some of his his arguments here, but basically one of the things that was that that has been really good about Britain um, in particular, and it's funny because like you know when I was growing up, I was just like extremely anti Britain. Right. Like, um, like extremely like uh, Britain is the cause of like all like British British imperialism is like the cause of all 
injustice and inequity in the world and like you know the, like the british empire is just something to be like scorned um, yeah I, I had a strong irish identity growing up so yeah. I, I know what you mean yeah um so it was interesting because like i i yeah he makes some good arguments for some things that are particularly special about britain and one of the main things he talks about is like one there are certain ways in which the eu is an incredibly unaccountable system of government mm-hmm. um where you know like it, it is really not clear who is responsible for any particular decision um there's not a like clear stance of like you know so and so is putting forward some idea and like if they are wrong they're going to be removed um like there's there's this the, the fact that there's so many layers between the actual decision making that's happening and the will of the people uh i think is is pretty problematic mm-hmm. um and one of the things he talks about is just like you know amongst western european countries like britain even tried socialism in a in a much more extreme way than anybody else in western europe but didn't have the same um long-term costs that uh that eastern europe had right like it, it didn't slide into totalitarianism it didn't slide into you know it, they they did socialism pretty you know fully uh immediately following world war 2 but because they had the system of error correction where you know and part of that is first past the post um but you know but mostly it's just you know if you if you put forward these ideas and these ideas don't work you can just pretty quickly lose an election um and so certain things remained after that experiment that that the british people are pretty happy about like the national healthcare system sure. um but like certain other experiments around education like failed pretty miserably and and were removed um and you don't see that kind of experimentation in the eu the eu is sort of designed to be much more uh like static and much less you know much less like let's try a thing and then let's undo it so one of the things he talked about is like even the you know um uh like even the way brexit was called right was like related to this sort of like unaccountability you know thing right where uh, david cameron was like well you know i'm not responsible for brexit but like we'll, we'll put it to the vote and then you know we'll get the will of people and then the fact that after after brexit happened the leave camp or the the remain campaign didn't immediately become a rejoin campaign you know didn't become a like like okay well we're going to leave let's that's what people have voted let's like not call this whole system into question like let's not like challenge the whole legitimacy of our government structure let's actually do what the people voted for but then make the best case for rejoining uh, as quickly as possible like all the all the concerns about brexit are often like just introducing fear uncertainty and doubt and making predictions about you know well the experts say x y and z will happen it's like well we can't really know what's going to happen like we should try it and if it's bad we should rejoin um but i think i think his his concern around basically the the lack of sovereignty right the fact that like you know on on all sorts of issues um you know you can't like you couldn't you couldn't implement like some of the like radical experiments that immediately followed world war 2 in terms of socialism when you have a like higher level governance structure that is telling you what you can and can't do um and like setting regulations for you and setting you know um and it, it was also interesting right when he was discussing the like there a lot of the arguments for remain were almost like guilt by association right they were like ah well like some racists want to leave therefore the folks who want to leave must be racist not even acknowledging the fact that like britain is probably one of the least racist countries in the european union the other countries there's like far far more explicitly racist countries that are that are having an influence on the the overall policy um so i think i think that yeah basically bias towards um you know bias towards the ability to fail fast bias towards accountability for the people who are putting forward policies and like um and the fact that like the eu has so much 
like additional layers of secrecy of like backroom meetings and like you know consensus building and like like it's it's not as good a system for error correction um, from government and I also think that yeah like there's there's plenty of reasons that like you don't need economic relationships in terms of you know free trade or in terms of like trading partnerships to be tied in with um, reduction of sovereignty for an individual nation so I think that that relates to like like Canada is not about to join you know as the 51st state so they can get like three points on their GDP Right? There's no reason for Canada to sacrifice their sovereignty to you know, the United States federal government in order to have some like, better relationships as a trading partner. Um, yeah. So I think that's my like, overall, but in general, I tend to have a bias towards like, you know, I, I think there's lots of important things about you know, international cooperation and like Interpol and NATO and those things, but like, like you know, those, those aren't sacrificing sovereignty for the individuals and they aren't reducing experimentation or um, like, uh, yeah, basically these these feedback loops of political legitimacy where someone can clearly articulate a position and if they're wrong they're removed from office yeah. um like and so that's that's the thing that i think is is uh why like brexit was a good idea it's, it's argument for an error correction system for like mm -hmm. for some systemic like kind of structures that allow yeah. for better error correction and, and and control gives you that right so like you know people when they when they actually have you know like when the, the people actually have control over their government in a more direct way, right? Um, and there's more control being placed in, you know, parliament as opposed to in the EU governing body where you don't have any control. And, you know, what are you gonna, you're gonna change your representative that goes there, but like, they're still just gonna be making backroom deals with other folks that you've never heard of in Brussels, right? So- Well, um, I mean, control, control allows you to have whatever control moves towards, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and in the case of Britain, Britain had was using that control in an effective, ineffective error correction system, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And and what's interesting about this is, in fact, I would argue that this might be one of those points of I'm 51% confident, and people read it as confident, which is yeah. you're not confident that five years from now, if there was an actual leave, that there wouldn't be a rejoin. It's not like you're saying yeah. Yeah. this is a good idea; it's going to turn out well. You're saying it's an experiment; they should be allowed to run it. Exactly. And like, if the people voted for it and they experimented, and I think this is one of the reasons why like the Tories just crushed it in the last election is because people are like, Hey, we voted for this thing. Like we voted for this thing and you guys just are completely ignoring us. Like, and you know, saying like, ah, well, this is like, you know, Facebook and blah, blah, blah. Like this is like, like there's, there's some excuse for why the, the, the people yeah. who voted shouldn't be listened to. And it's like, right. that's, that's just total bullshit. It's like, well, no, like people voted for leave. So what does that mean for what does that mean for 2016 American politics? Because there was such a tie together in this idea of nativism and change and and you know I you know Trump being about drain the swamp and and you know change things right like it seems like a, we're at a rock the boat moment politically globally. Yeah. Um, what 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 do we how do we like take that lesson or that argument for Brexit and apply it to U.S. politics? Yeah, I mean, I think that like. Uh, honestly, I think Eric Weinstein said some pretty great things on this, where like part of the thing that, that people are, uh, have been, were frustrated by in 2016 uh, is like this, this idea that the, the Democratic Party had been sort of like co-opted by elites that didn't particularly care about, you know, the, the will of the people. Mm -hmm. um, and that a lot of this stuff has been couched in, you know, moral arguments where it's like, mm -hmm. oh, like you should care about, you know, should care about the third world or you should care about like you know like the folks in in mexico right where in reality a lot of the like a lot of the trade stuff that's been going on right it's like if i think about like things which which have had a massive impact on climate change right one of the things that, that has had a massive impact on climate change was 
like moving so much of our manufacturing over to China where there's no ability for us to regulate it. Right. And like reducing that autonomy. And like, it's hilarious that, you know, in the early nineties, the person who was advocating most loudly for opening up the relationship with China and, you know, moving most of our manufacturing over there was Al Gore. Right. So like, you know, Al Gore in his, in his like geopolitical stuff made it such that the U S can't actually have that huge an influence on like total, you know, uh, like total reduction in greenhouse gases, at least for manufacturing. Right. So, um, so I think there's, there's something to the, like the skepticism that the folks who are claiming to be, you know, for the oppressed and for the, the disenfranchised um, seem to have been like a little bit engaged in, in uh, you know, more interested in, in multinational corporations and those kinds of things. Um, so I, I like understand, and I also just generally by Andrew Yang's sort of argument of like, like people aren't looking at the problems that got Donald Trump elected. They are looking at the fact that, you know, we automated and, and I think also exported away millions of manufacturing jobs across the Midwest we are in the midst of this like fourth industrial revolution that is having huge implications on the nature of work. And we have of like a really stressed out population that's living paycheck to paycheck, you know, like what is it like, like more than 50% of Americans couldn't afford a $500 bill that like came out, you know, came as a surprise. So. Is that um, higher or, or lower than 30 years ago? Do you have any insight? I'm pretty sure it's, I'm pretty sure that like the amount of economic instability in the United States is, is like the, the precariat is at an all-time high. I don't know if it's an all-time high, but it seems it like um, it certainly feels like it. Whether whether yeah. it is or isn't, and I think that's yeah. actually an interesting point here, which is we're not doing a lot of understanding. It's a complex system, and we're also not doing a lot of fact-based things. We're doing a lot of feeling-based things, but a yeah. lot of decisions are emotional at their core. Yeah. So yeah. this all I mean, this all intuitively makes sense to me, but yeah, um, it's interesting because I think you. How did you describe your uh, political beliefs? Is like a collective autonomy or something like that? like atomic communitarianism or like, you know, like atomic communitarianism or like, like libertarian. Well, it's just this idea of like, um, I wouldn't call myself libertarian because I don't believe that like, I, I don't really buy this idea that like individuals are purely individuals, right. Or like Mm -hmm. individuals are an Island and that like, you know, there's, there is such a like homo economicus rational actor. Right. (laughs) Um, like, like folks are shaped by their environment. And one of the important decisions that we have to make are like, what are the constraints that we place on our environment? Um, what are, what are, I think a lot of things like, you know, there's a, a good translation game, right. Of, um, you know, uh, I heard from a, a friend who's who's a bit more conservative libertarian talking about how she used to be like a bit triggered when people were talking about, you know, systemic bias or like, you know, systemic problems, right? Like, mm-hmm. like in, in racism and those kinds of things. And when she sort of made a mental switch of systemic problems being incentive problems, she was like, oh yeah, the thing you're describing is completely correct, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there are like lots of situations where we have pretty bad incentives set up and incentives such that like, you know, folks are following their incentives and their incentives are causing them to, you know, maximize negative externalities on a lot of people that they don't know and don't have any relationships with, whether that's through, you know, moving a bunch of manufacturing jobs over to a place with lower regulation where, you know, you can, you can give workers shittier working conditions and you can make a higher profit and you can like disrupt a bunch of communities that have been built around those, those, you know, jobs. Right. Um, or like the mechanical turpinization of, of everything where like, you know, you can break work up into like micro components that like, that uh, like sort of remove the, the sovereignty from, from workers and the, people are following their incentives. 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if you're thinking about how to like structure society, you want to think about incentive design and you want to think about, okay, how do we, how do we create a system that is actually like maximizing the most good for people um, and, and maximizing sort of the health of the system long-term. And in the case of Brexit, right? Like that's, you know, having that, that more local autonomy in terms of, you know, how Britain is going to, to govern itself might have some consequences, but if it improves error correction in the long run, it's going to, it's going to make for much, much, much better policy. Um, yeah. It's going to make for a much better like life for a lot of people. So, um, so yeah, I guess that's my sort of like my, my stance on things is like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with government. I don't have a problem with us, like, you know, making collective decisions about what we can and can't do. Um, and like, you know, trying to like tweak the incentive structures that exist. Um, but, uh, but in general, I also have a lot more faith in, distributed intelligence right um and and basically like yeah ways of ways of getting insight or like good ideas from people who don't have like institutional uh like blue checks on their on their twitter account right yeah um, so yeah yeah so and this is actually an interesting point where uh, i won't go into the rabbit hole here because that'll that'll tack another hour onto this yeah, uh, sure. this uh discussion but you know, one of the things that I'm writing down, which is a new idea that's triggered uh, for me from, from this discussion, um, is this idea that if you think of society or culture or what have you as, you know, in development, right? It's yeah. kind of helpful to use the, the model of a child, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, like, well, you know, what, what, how do you raise a good child? You let them make mistakes, but you yeah. let them make mistakes that don't kill them, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so you, you kind of, you know, encourage them to have their own version of error correction. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so if you think of kind of good societal structure, it's a structure that will allow you to make the mistakes that you should be allowed to make. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, rather than trying to save you from yourself, because yep. obviously we are dealing with incredibly complex systems that are hard yep. to predict. Yep. So, you know, Gore uh, talking about, you know, moving uh, stuff, you know, kind of international trade, moving manufacturing into China. Yep. Um, I'm actually not familiar with that, but I'm taking you at your word that it's true. Yep. Um, I, that, that has one of those things where it could drive, you know, a hundred different kind of unintended consequences out of it, yep. Um, yep. including kind of geopolitical security, including, yep. uh, uh, you know, trade partnerships, economics, yep. et cetera. Um, and all of those things are hard to predict. Um, yep. And so that brings me to this point of like, where, if we should be allowed to make the mistakes that we should be allowed to make, the ones that don't kill us, yep. um, then how we organize and how we don't organize, how we organize and disorganize as, as cultures yep. should be one of those things. Yep. Um, I, I, and there's an argument for the place where I don't actually know the right answer is when decisions should be default technocratic or default individual. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you get to this kind of, you know, uh, as individuals, we often don't understand the whole, the whole broad context. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have, think of it as like the average user being able to vote on feature development for, Facebook. And I think that's actually a good example. If we made it that you could deactivate Facebook and leave, yeah. then you Voice don't exit, get to right? control what Facebook yep. is, right? Yep. Yep. You're about to say something here. Go, you're going to well, go was, in a I was, was going to say, say voice and exit, right? Like those are like the two mm. ways that you can influence a, a group that you're a part of, right? Is either you have voice, you know, like in the case of mm. like a, la- a labor union or something like that, that like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, can, can change policies or like, you know, has, has a seat at the table for, for decision-making or exit. Uh, that's one of the challenges you've got with, with these, you know, these social networks is your only option is exit. But when they have, um, you know, the sort of like compound interest of network effects where like, you know, all of your friends are there, you're all of your friends are not somewhere else. Right. You really don't have that much 
exit opportunity unless you're going to like you know remove yourself from from the playing from the commons right um, well and this is i think true i think that's actually a very good example of politics today right yeah. we have some voice i mean certainly voting creates structures for this yeah i mean but there's um, a whole other problem in in the united states where the the um I'm trying to think, uh, what's her name? Um, I think it was, so it was Nate, no, it wasn't Nate Silver. Um, uh, she was in Jessica Lawrence, I think, um, like from the Hunger Games, had a, a oh, great yeah. video where she was sort of talking about this, this magic number of 30% where it really doesn't matter how much popular support a given bill has going into Congress. Like we think this, we have this, this sort of notion in our democracy that like, you know, if something is like very widely supported, it will like pass Congress. Um, but pretty universally, a bill entered into Congress has about a 30% chance of passing, whether there's zero support for it or 100% support for it. Hmm. So there's clearly this like big problem in the United States democratic system, where especially at the federal level, there's actually almost no error correction in terms of um, like public policy, right? There's there's no place where a change in public sentiment influences that. And and you know some folks might be like, ah, well we have a republic. It's it's not supposed to be democratic. It's not supposed to be the will of the people influences government, but like the, the degree to which there is a separation between how people think that the, the government in the United States works and how it actually works, um, I think is, is one of the biggest challenges that we have right now. And that's where I think, you know, um, I happen to think that the, like, if you're trying to eliminate the, the incentive structure, which does create corruption in a sense, right? Like corruption is basically just like, like it has all the, the sort of moral connotations to it, but I think, the system can be corrupt because it creates incentives which are not aligned with the way that we think the system is supposed to be aligned. Right now, the incentive structure is if you are a congressman or if you are a senator, you're having to spend about 70% of your time fundraising in order to just make enough money to win the next election, to buy to buy the ads that you need to do to like, you know, to mobilize the ground force that you need to mobilize. So the incentives are set up that you have to raise a shit ton of money. And the only really effective way to do that is from large donors and bundlers and, you know, special interests. And so we end up with a system where, you know, like the will of the people doesn't translate at all because the incentives are aligned with um, who can raise the most money. And so that's where I think if you want to change those systems and, and you know, you want to have like structural change, that's one of the reasons my, my, I think the, the most important, um, uh, it's probably the second most important. I do think universal basic income is another place where you, you, you're actually like uh, putting cognition at the edges Right. You're saying like instead of just like, you know, um, putting all the decision making power in the mayor or, you know, the like the congressperson for a federal jobs guarantee where like, you know, we're going to channel all the money through institutions of power to then get distributed in terms of deciding what should happen. I, I prefer something where you're you're broadly spreading capital um, across a large number of people. And if, if the person decides that the, the most effective use of their capital is for them to, you know, take care of their sick grandmother and you know like stay home and raise their kids right um like or or you know go play guitar right if they decide that's the most effective use of the capital that's the most like I, I prefer that that distributed cognition allow people to like you know make some errors um, but i think that the more important policy from andrew yang that i really like is this democracy dollars idea where you basically give every citizen a voucher of 100 bucks a year that they can put onto and and the fact that this would wash out um like corporate money by a factor of eight, you know, even if uh, only half the people actually end up using these hundred dollar vouchers. Um, I think that's the thing that actually leads to a change in the incentive structure for government as, as a whole, which would allow you to actually start tackling some much larger problems. So those, those two things where you're, 
you're creating a system you're from a centralized perspective you're you're changing the incentive structure and then distributing intelligence much more broadly right that's the place where i think centralized authority can be really useful um is like when the centralized authority is redirecting resources such that you get more distributed intelligence there's an there there's an interesting point where you, i think you and i may disagree slightly or at least i don't intuitively agree yeah um uh where i think great technocrats are functionally like incentive designers that should bias towards simplicity and longer term thinking. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we'd probably agree on that. I think we'd also probably agree that there's startlingly few people in, you know, current politics and the current political system who are great technocrats. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there are you know, some that are good, some that are medium, some that are bad. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to note that like in China, you know, the number one occupation before entering government is engineering. Whereas in the United States, it's, it's, you know, being a lawyer, right? Like, um, and so, you know, I think there's, there's something that's pretty, pretty significant there in terms of like what kind of people are being selected for by, by the culture. Um, to what do you think the selection difference between lawyer and engineer is? Cause both of those seem like structured thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that like, uh, I mean, it has to do with, with the, like, I think it, it's one of those things of like, like attracts like, right. Of like, you know, if you have a, uh, a government that was like built by lawyers, like the people who they're going to sort of like handpick and say like, okay, you get the endorsement of the party or like people who think like them. Um, and how yeah. do lawyers and engineers think differently though? Well, one is a pretty adversarial basis, right? Mm -hmm. And so one is basically thinking about like, okay, like my, my job is to persuade, um, how do I win job, the argument? How do I win the argument? Um, which I think is also like pretty, pretty useful. Right. And the sure. engineer is like, um, uh, like thinking about overall system construction. Um, I think both of them are like not necessarily the best suited for incentive design. Um, but like, yeah, yeah, there's like, there's like, there's good things about lawyers and there's good things about engineers. Right. But um, it, who, what, what profession or background would be the best in suit, the best suited for incentive design? I don't know. Like, I mean, there is like something where, so it's interesting, right? Because I think one of the, the challenges that folks have with like the business community right, is that it's hard to tell um, because there's, there's so much incentive for people to, um, to sort of maximize the negative externalities yeah. and to like, uh, to basically capture as much value as possible as opposed to creating as much value as possible. Yeah. And you, you can measure the value that's captured, but you can't measure the value that's created. Um, so I think there's, there's a challenge for, because like my first instinct would be to like say, oh, well, like, you know, like, business people, right? Yeah. Um, but the challenge with that is that a lot of times the folks who are really successful in, in finance or in business are the folks who are successful at value capture, um, which is not necessarily the same thing as the folks who are really good at um, like expanding the commons and you know creating a bunch of uncaptured value. Um, uh, I think there's like some nice things in general in startups of like you have to create a huge amount of value from very little. Um, but like, there's nothing inherent in startups that says that you're going to be creating more value than you have. Like, you know, like, yeah. like you can't, you can't easily tell the difference between somebody who's capturing 1% of the value and using that to like perpetuate a, a feedback loop that allows them to create exponentially more value versus somebody who's capturing 90% of the value that they create. And, you know, like, so I think that's, that's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. I don't have a great answer for that. Yeah. There's also a difference between tension for systems thinking, which I think is important. Like the ability to hold a lot of complexity in your head is important. 
Yeah. Um, and I'm not convinced that the business tests for that. I think it, no. I think it rewards it, but I don't think it tests for it. Yeah. Um, I do think there's some, there's some like, I guess I, I'm biased towards like, I guess iconoclastic scientists that are like really trying to do like paradigm shifting work, but there's, it's going to be a small minority in any profession. I think that is actually like trying to like figure out, okay, what are the things that other people are considering edge cases that are actually central to like the flaw in the paradigm? Um, And I I think you see that like, it's pretty rare. Most people are going to be doing it, going to work in, in whatever field they're in. The, uh, it's funny, I've got, uh, in any one of these that, that I feel like goes well, I've got, I end with more questions than I started with. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I've got, I've got a huge chunk of those. I also don't want to burn another you know, cool. hour of your day. Yeah, um, yeah. I did, I did ask a couple of people, like, what should I talk about? Um, and the one that's, the one that I had on my list, but not as strongly, and I probably would have skipped it if I didn't get a bunch of people asking about it, yeah. is why you love closure. Oh, um, yeah. And like what, what, yeah, what do you think the, the tool enables? So give yeah. me like just a high level and I'm, yeah, I'm not a super technical guy. Give me yeah. like a little bit of a background on, uh, on, on why you love that and why you hate rails. Uh, yeah. All right. So there's a great, there's a great little, like it's a GitHub gist. It's sort of this, I said, this guy wrote of like closures for type B programmers. And it sort of opens with like, you know, I'm sitting here like doodling on a stack of overdue bills, like drinking a cheap beer and eating a gas station donut thinking about why I love closure. And like, those are like very related. And this was from a guy who built a a pretty successful Rust ID. And so you can take like closure and Rust as as two sort of different like paradigms. Like Rust is like a strongly typed static language that like, is like all about like provability and like secure, like, yeah. yeah, Like, like you have to sort of like have a top-down model of how everything's gonna work to like do it really well. Um, Whereas closure is, a, so it's, it's a it's a lisp um, so it's a place where like code is data you're thinking in terms of like um, you know data and functions which are these like everything you have is like these data and functions but, but, but code itself is data um, so they're they're sort of this like uh, isomorphism there um, mm-hmm. but it's really good for just like evolutionary thinking right it's really good for like it's really good for experimentation it's really good for like kind of like mucking around in the dark when you don't quite know what you're building. Um, and you're like, you're gradually building pieces that, that you then reuse in the creation of other pieces. Um, it, it sort of, I really, really like Rich Hickey's thoughts in general. Um, like a lot of his talks are, I think, pretty accessible to a, to a non-technical audience, although they're, they're more resonant if you understand more of what he's talking about. Um, but the emphasis on simplicity and the emphasis on composability of like, you know, when you have a problem, trying to break it down to its its most discrete parts and then building each solution in such a way that you can layer them on top of each other to, to build a bigger recipe. You know, thinking in terms of like, not in terms of molecules, but like atoms that become molecules and molecules that become organisms and organisms that become, you know, yeah, ecosystems. Um, so I think it, it's just been hugely influential in like even the design of Rome as a product. Um, like, I think that like, if you, you know, the, like uh, the closure programmers who like start using Rome are like, yeah, this, this feels like, it feels like a Lisp environment, right? Um, like you're, uh, and so I think that's, that's another thing that we're trying to do with Rome is like sort of have that, like think about the, the atomic units of your thoughts and think about how you can like build them together. Um, like basically like, like implement a little bit of the like Lisp philosophy of, problem solving and of knowledge management um, uh, into, you know, like, cause I, I think of code is basically just a, 
a diamond of crystallized thought, right? You know, you're, you're, it, it, it's sort of magical, right? You're like, you're, you're conjuring these like abstract ideas into a reified physical thing that now like lives on a machine and, and operates it. But like you're, you're, you're summoning these demons and then, you know, getting these demons to, to work together. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's one of the reasons like philosophically why uh, I, I've liked closure a lot. And, um, and I also think, you know, I was pretty influenced by Paul Graham. Um, and so some of his early writing, he sort of talked about like, well, yeah, you know, like people that. talk about how Lisp, writing Lisp will make you a better programmer. Why would you not write in a language that's going to make you a better programmer when, you know, you're, you're talking to a computer. It's not like Latin where you need other people to talk to. Um, right. But the other reason I like closure is like there is a really great community of people who are both extremely pragmatic, right? The difference between closure and a lot of other Lisps is it's extremely pragmatic. It's very like, you know, most of the code that we use is, often like React components that, you know, might've been written in TypeScript, but we can, we can call those components really easily. And, and um, uh, so, you know, we're able to use all the advantages of a much larger ecosystem of whether it's Java or JavaScript. Um, uh, so we're not sort of like trapped in our own little environment with only a handful of other people, but you know, there's, there's a really good community of people who are trying to take great ideas from every other language community and, and um, import those into uh, the closure ecosystem. So it, it seems, yeah, a bunch of it's cultural. There's a, there, it's funny because there's a thread, I think, in what I've heard you talk about there, here and on Twitter and stuff, um, and Rome and uh, uh, I, you know, org mode and startup yeah. building in general, right? Which is this idea of like trying to solve a problem in the way where you would have to if you weren't able to just turn the light on on everything at once. Like, yeah. I think we call mucking around in the dark, right? Like, yeah. like yeah. Trying, trying to solve this kind of un, unknowable, like, you can't just map it all out at once and then yep. go tackle it, right? You've got to yep. kind of you know, execute as you go. Yep. Um, and I'll test this out with you, but I, I mean, it, I've heard you talk about a couple of things. One is um, kind of simplicity, which I'll talk about as like reducibility. Like you can reduce it down to an understandable model. You can make it easier to understand. Yep. Um, and then composability, which is capture. And those two interplay. Yep. Um, and I hear a lot of like, like you just call it pragmatism with, uh, with closure. And I, I think there's, there's related concepts in, in Rome and founding and these kind of things, um, which is really maybe not, that's not a universal function of a way to muck around in the dark, but it's kind of a worldview thing. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's programming like, you know, you as the player going through the challenge. Yep. Am I on the right path, off the right path? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I like, like the thing that I think about with closure, right? It's like, you're, you're writing a language for yourself, right? Like, so th this is another, mm. there, there's a, like a quick, um, tangent is like so one of my favorite thinkers is like Doug Engelbart who's you know credited as inventing the mouse but I think really invented um uh like the whole idea of like user interface design and like you know human computer interaction really like started in many ways at um at SRI and uh like so he had a paper in like 1962 um called augmenting the human intellect and he it was sort of like the conceptual framework for um a lot of the work that ended up you know they were they were some of the earliest people who were even using screens and the idea of typing and having it like come up on a screen that you could see and then editing that text. Right. Yeah. This idea that there are sort of like four ways that you, you know, a, um, an augmentation system is a human who has artifacts, language and methods in which they can be trained. Mm. And um, that basically like, you know, language is, is this like, uh, yeah, this like crystallization of a concept. Like when we have a word for something, 
right? We can, we can use that word in a sentence and eventually we whole sentences become new words. And then you, you can basically um, build up these abstractions, which give you greater conceptual leverage over reality um, yeah. to like, to think things that you couldn't previously have thought before, right? It, like growing your vocab grows your domain of thinkable thoughts. Um, and so I think that's, that's the overall like trend that we've got is like, you know, if we're trying to, if we're trying to th see things that we haven't seen before, um, we need in some ways to like expand our language in order to like, in order to even be able to think those thoughts. And so that's one of the things that, that I think sort of ties like closure and Rome together is like, you're trying to be able to like, um, in each piece of work that you're doing, expand the domain of thoughts you are capable of thinking. Um, and like that, that, that sort of like conceptual leverage is like, yeah, necessary to solve problems that are like currently not solvable by you. Right. Yeah. Like, like a problem clearly stated is a problem half solved. Half of the yeah. work that you have to do is like, how do I even describe this problem? How do I, yeah. How do I name it? How do I think about what it is? And, and every name is going to be, there is sort of like lossy compression, right? There's like, you know, you're going to, you're going to not, you're going to name things wrong. Right. Like you're going to like, like your description of things is, is never going to sort of capture the fullness of reality of what's going on. Like, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. Another paper I really like is called fuck nuance where it sort of talks about like, you know, this trend in, in sociology research of everybody sort of asking for more and more nuance in every paper that's being made. But like every, every all models are false. Some are useful, right? Yeah. Your model is going to like, by virtue of being an abstraction, lack a bunch of nuance. Um, but if it has explanatory power, like it can still be really useful. You don't want to like, you don't want to throw out things just because they don't capture everything, but you also want to be able to like, you know, go back and, and see, okay, well, what wasn't captured by that? Is there another explanatory system that, that covers that better that they could intersect? Yeah. I, 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 Eric had a, a bunch of stuff on Peter Thiel kind of doing this almost structurally, like wanting to go, like wanting to get to the simplest possible, like mimetic transfer. Yep. even if it was lossy, right? Yep. So yep. How far can you reduce it to make it understandable? Yep, exactly. Um, and communicable. Um, yep. Cool. What, by the way, what, what's the difference between Rome and localocracy? Like, what's the, what's the different approach you're taking building Rome? Like, you know, this, is, this definitely feels like you're, you've learned some things from the localocracy experience that you're not you know, recreating or yeah. Or that I you mean, are. The, the, number one, the number one thing is that um, in localocracy, you started with a thing that required network effects to be successful. Mm. Right. So like, you know, if you're, if you're trying to have a, a commons to influence public opinion, it doesn't really matter until you get critical mass. Right. Yeah. Like, and so there's very little incentive for any one person to be the first person to start really contributing. And if you're the second person to contribute and the first person has put a bunch of good arguments for why your thing is bad, you also, you have like more incentive to like ignore the thing and like not draw attention to it. Right. than you do to like like put forward good arguments yeah. so I, I think the biggest thing that I, I took away from that first startup was hey even if i want to eventually do a thing that is going to be a collaborative tool that is going to be you know a way for people to disagree effectively and to like you know to have conflict um it's it has to start as a single player tool it has to start as a thing that is useful to individuals and it might go many years as being primarily a, a single player tool before you start to like even worry about those network effects. Um, especially if you're interested in, you know, because every time we launched a new town, we were starting from scratch. And the thing that I wanted to avoid was, I happen to think that really good ideas often come from the intersection of different fields. Yeah. Um, so it's like, if we want somebody to be able to take some ideas from synthetic biology 
you know, and remix those with some ideas in physics and then remix those with some ideas in public policy, you know, you, you need, you, you want the, you don't want to have to have critical mass in all three of those areas before those intersections can start to happen. So, um, so that's, that's where we sort of said, okay, we're going to scale it way back and say, how do you collaborate with yourself before you worry about collaborating with other people? And that, that's the thing that got me interested in like, you know, as a person who's reading pretty widely, how do I remix the ideas in the different books that I'm reading? Cause I don't need every author in each of those books to be using Rome. I can just, you know, copy paste my Kindle highlights and right. start to remix the ideas myself. And I, I don't need to be dependent on uh, other people in the system. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, one of, the, one of the other things that I'm, I'm picking up on as a user and I could be wrong here is yeah. it feels like Rome is, stable in a way that okay. other companies aren't. Um, and I guess what I mean by that is I don't think it's going to be fickle to, to the, to like success metrics in a way. And I think that's predominantly because I think you're iconoclastic, oh, um, cool. which nice. is right. Like, you know, Hey, if the thing, if the thing runs out of money, I, I have some weird instinct that you'll like spend 12 years toiling in the dark, working on it. It's anyway. probably because I did, you know, before, <laughs> like, yeah, I like just like, like poured all the earnings from my first company into like a really long research period of the dark until I, ran out of money and then had to start raising. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean like our first couple of years we, we had, we had, we had revenue before we really fundraised because um, we basically just found a bunch of resource organizations that liked the prototype and were willing to pay us to develop it. Um, but yeah, like we, we live pretty cheap and uh, we were able to make a, you know, a small amount of funding go a really long way. So I, Is it I think like ramen profitable now or. Uh, well, so we're, we're probably going to turn on payments in the next um, uh, like couple of months. Um, okay. so like we were, we were robbing and profitable through like those enterprise contracts, but, sure. um, there's, there's problems with that where, you know, we, especially now that we're worried about scale, I'd, I'd rather be focused on just like regular users than enterprise contracts. So totally. we're probably going to be doing, uh, like almost no enterprise stuff for a while. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, we've, we've just, you know, we've raised a bit of money and we've got quite a long runway based on that. Um, and also I expect that, yeah, we'll be like pretty, pretty profitable this year. So, um, yeah, but, but even if we weren't like, it's just, you know, we were able to build it with two people and yeah, I, I, I plan on working on this till I die. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's, uh, and that's, that's fun. It's like, it's the thing that I want to be working on. Right. It's the yeah. thing that I've been thinking about for now, like about 12 years. So, um, nice. like, yeah. And, and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wrote up all of our, our open questions and not all of our open questions. I, I did some, you know, maybe like three hours of it last night, but like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff we haven't figured out yet. There's a huge amount that, that, um, that we were working on for the next couple of years. So um, even if other people, my, my hope is that like backlinks and, you know, the atomicity of like individual units of thought and the ability to remix things. I hope that, that the rest of the industry tries, tries to play catch up. And you know that we get those things in, in Google Docs and Notion and Dropbox Paper and all those other things. But um, for us, it's like really just the start of of what we're working on. Um, and so you know, I, yeah, I, I hope that we can, but I hope we can move the industry in a in a direction that is a little bit more towards this, um, like knowledge mapping. Well, the the job of the founders to bring the future forward, whether they capture yeah. the value from that, is, yeah, exactly. is undetermined. Yeah. Um, as we were talking about before. Uh, all right, well, hey, you, you've been super generous at the time and I think had basically no idea what you were getting into before doing this. Oh, no, this was yeah. fantastic. This is a great, like, I, I like these, these, you know, I haven't, uh, no one's asked me about my, my thoughts on Brexit in, a, in an interview originally about Rome. So that's, that was funny. Um, 
but uh, yeah, hope, hopefully we've compressed some ideas and, and created some like, you know, thought artifacts that could, that could be useful. And, and I'll just like caveat, like, you know, I don't know anything about what I'm talking about. So like, you know, uh, like uh, I, I, I will play Cunning Sam's Law. And if, if people are like, hey, like this particular thought that you articulated is just complete bullshit. I'm very happy to, to hear like rebuttals to any, any of those points. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And you're, uh, you are an entertaining follow on Twitter. So for the folks that want to want to rebut you or just follow along uh, as the, uh, I, by the way, I don't think you're the, the Nassim Taleb of knowledge management. I think you're the Hunter S. Thompson of tech founding. Yes. Um, so, there great, you go. Great. Uh, so for folks who want to follow along with the, uh, the wacky wild journey, uh, where are oh, you on Twitter? Yeah. Gonzo, I'm, I'm C O N A W S or no C O N A W. So it's, it's, uh, um, I'm from Boston and uh, the way that, that I remember a friend, you know, texting me, they were like, Hey, Connor, um, and so this was, you know, like when I, uh, I was like, oh yeah, like Kana, that sounds like how, like a lot of people pronounce my name. Um, so Kana on Twitter, uh, C-O-N-A-W. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we'll do another one of these at some point. And, uh, at the very least we should talk about the, uh, uh, we didn't even get into the whole fact of like Boston upbringing being a part of iconoclastic. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Yeah. 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 You know, like tea parties and shit. <laughs>